I'm Ethan Warren. And this is The Great Hunting Caper. Jim Henson's 1965 short film timepiece begins with an exploding clock. Soon, a man, played by Henson, is moving through a surreal cityscape, his environment shifting around him in the space of a cut, his outfit swapping out each time. He continues hurtling through space, his journey intercut with random absurd imagery. The man wears white overalls and paints an elephant pink. Dressed as a gunslinger, he shoots a hole in the Mona Lisa. Later, Jim would say, I was playing with a kind of flow of consciousness type of editing where one image took you to another, and there was no logic to it, but your mind put it together. The man runs in prison stripes. He runs in top hat and tails. He runs down a highway through a field. He runs down the street in a loincloth. He runs across the desert. He runs downhill. He runs through a graveyard. A clock tolls. The man runs. And then, at last, he flies. As Muppets writer Jerry Jewell said later, quote, Jim was always running from time. There never would have been enough time. And I think he knew that really early. End quote. Jim met Jane Nebel in 1954 when they were students at the University of Maryland. They were placed together in a puppetry class, ultimately producing a marionette performance of James Thurber's The Thirteen Clocks. Jane's performance as the mysterious Golux was so proficient, Jim was compelled to ask her to collaborate on an extracurricular basis. Jim had some experience as a puppeteer by then, having been cast on a children's morning show that was swiftly canceled for violating child labor laws. The executives at Washington, D.C.'s local NBC affiliate liked Jim, though, as well as his early puppets like Pierre the French Rat. Soon, Jim and Pierre were making appearances on a variety of local programs. Pierre was a typical example of the hand puppets of the era, which often had solid blockheads with little room for expression. Cloth hand puppets weren't much better, with solid linings to the mouths that similarly limited expressiveness. This was the sort of puppetry one could see on the popular Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. Beyond that, puppets meant marionettes or ventriloquist acts, like the well-liked Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. No, what did he do? What did he do? No, no, I asked you first. Yeah. Miles Standis? Yeah. You don't know? No, no, I don't know, no. No, make me look cheap. Go ahead. <laughs> Why, Miles Standish is one of our Pilgrim Fathers. How? Yes. Pilgrim Father? Yes. He's a married man? No, no, he isn't a married man. Well, how, how could he be? Uh, a... Well, of course, it's none of my business, is it? <laughs> In any case, one thing was certain in American culture. Puppets were for little kids. Jim had no real passion for puppetry. As he said later, Oh, I never played with puppets or had any interest in them. It was just a means to an end. What he loved was television, and if puppetry was the easiest road to that goal, then puppetry it would be. Soon, Jim and Jane, whose relationship began as strictly platonic and remained so, were invited onto the local variety show Afternoon, which led to an offer they couldn't refuse their own five-minute show to air in the D.C. area at 11.25 between the local news and The Tonight Show. Sam and Friends is brought to you by Askers. Jim and Jane came up with Sam and Friends, an antic series of sketches featuring the title character, the bald, hard-headed, mouth-flapping Sam, 
and his coterie of friends, an ensemble of frenzied, destructive puppets like the squat, fuzzy mushmelon and the grotesquely bulbous chicken liver, who looked distinct within the field of TV puppetry. Jim crafted the majority of his puppets with soft interiors, allowing for much greater flexibility. When one of Sam's friends, Kermit, a blue-green creature that might have been a lizard, was frustrated or afraid, a slight change in Jim's hand position could give the character a big and very funny expression. In addition, Jim used both hands to manipulate his puppets, attaching a rod to one felt hand so the puppet could gesture. The result was something new and evocatively abstract. All the characters in those days were abstract, because that was part of the principle that I was working under, that you wanted abstract things. Those abstract characters, I still feel, are slightly more pure. Given how unlike anything else his puppets were, Jim decided they needed a new name. He liked Muppets. Kukla, Fran, and Ollie featured a puppet theater, a frame within the frame of the TV screen. Jim had no interest in that convention. Instead, he saw the TV screen as the puppet theater, using the edges of the camera as the proscenium. As a result, he could create remarkable effects using the depth available in the studio, bringing the puppets away from the camera only to rush back into great comic effect. Not wanting to risk being seen by the camera, Jim kept his eye on monitors that allowed him to see what the audience was seeing, an innovation at the time that's now standard practice. Jim was 19 years old and he was already transforming the art of screen puppetry. To Jim, though, it wasn't innovation, just pragmatic problem solving. I think... If you study, if you learn too much of what others have done, you may tend to take the same direction as everybody else. It's really the first time you see someone who has cracked the code of how puppets can look on television. Jim very quickly uh, and intuitively figured out that there was a different way to do this. And what I love about Jim in the Sam and Friends era and Jim Henson in, in general is that um, one of the reasons he was so great at finding solutions hidden in plain sight to a lot of regular, you know, problems that had that had sort of plagued other performers or other people trying to do things was he didn't really know what the rules were. But because he doesn't know those rules, um, Jim is finding really innovative ways to portray puppets, to make puppets look great on television. So rather than do the Kuka Fran and Ollie model, where Jim puts up a puppet theater and pokes the puppets out from behind the theater, Jim realized intuitively that the four sides of the TV screen are the puppet theater, and that's enough. That's all you need. Uh, and what that does is suddenly puppets can exist in space, meaning that because you're only bound by the four sides of the TV screen, the Muppets can come in from any side of the screen. They can come in from the top if they want. They can come from the bottom, the sides. They can rush the camera. They can back into a shot. So Jim has all of a sudden opened up this world in which Sam and Friends can exist, and that's what they do. So Sam and Friends is really exciting, I think. Um, I mean, the, the skits are funny. The, it's, it's Jim lip-syncing to old songs and, and doing comedy bits. The show itself is fantastic, but I think what's really exciting about it is you're seeing for the first time someone cracking the code, someone figuring out how to make puppets live on television, and that's what's really exciting to me about Sam and Friends. Though Jim and Jane would eventually adopt dialogue, the early years of Sam and Friends were almost entirely devoted to Muppets lip-syncing to popular records of the day. Songs like Stan Freeberg's I've Got You Under My Skin, or Louis Prima and Keeley Smith's That Old Black Magic, with amusing choreography that counterpointed or commented on the music. Much of the time, the sketches ended with an explosion, or one Muppet eating another. 
I've always been particular to things eating other things. It was a simple gimmick, but it proved massively popular. Sam and Friends was a DC area sensation. Every time I see anything about Sam and Friends, it's always very exciting because he has so much already figured out right at the beginning, and yet it's also very much like, oh, this is him figuring it out. You know, <laughs> that uh, it's seeing him operate at a local TV level. Um, there's something really inspiring about it because he just basically like wants to do this thing and he makes it happen. And I've often, I've often wondered why there weren't more people who tried to do what he did or, or, or even since he passed away, why there hasn't been someone who has emerged who's like, I'm going to be the new Jim Henson. Because he was a self-starter. He was like, I want to uh, do puppets on TV, and he did puppets on TV. And uh, it, it, the fact that there hasn't been one just further establishes what a one-of-a-kind artist he is. Because uh, there, it's I, I I think the reason there haven't been imitators is because it's too hard to do what he did. Otherwise, I think we, we would have seen ten different people try to be the new, you know, because there have been people over the years who've tried to be the new Walt Disney. You know that you've had like people like Don Bluth or who've like started a studio and really made a stab at like I'm going to be the new Disney, but nobody's tried to be the new Jim Henson really. People have tried to carry on his work. But there hasn't been someone who has really, with, with the exception of maybe like Spitting Image in England, you know, and a few other places here and there who've tried to do something that's different than him, but uses a lot of what he, a lot of what he pioneered in terms of how comedy and puppets are used. Um, it feels like it's wide open for, there has to be some clever person out there who could try to uh, create not the next Muppet show, but at least the next Salmon Friends and then figure out where they go from there. You know, Salmon Friends seems to be a, a good blueprint for a creative person out there who's looking to do something uh, and find their own voice. Because if you start from there and, and do your own thing, you won't end up imitating the Muppet show. You'll end up figuring out your own uh, version of, of uh, uh, what a new Jim Henson would be like. It's something I think about a lot just in terms of like why there weren't a bunch of people trying to rip him off creatively. They couldn't. Um, from the beginning, he was doing something that almost seemed like you couldn't, uh, you couldn't note it or criticize it because it wasn't like anything else. You'd be like, well, what you're doing seems to be the best version. At the time of Zero and Friends, other than maybe like Kukla, Fran, and Ollie or Beanie and Cecil or something, like there were puppet things on TV at Zero and Friends, but it seems like even at his level, almost immediately he was doing things that were innovating. It's, I feel like it's tempting to think of Sam and Friends as like proto, everything that comes out, like everything that comes after it. But I'm always surprised at how seemingly fully formed some of that like felt material is, uh, both literally and like what their sort of like objectives are with it. Um, yeah, I, like just cruising through a few of like the, like you can find the highlights on, on certain corners of the internet and they're Muppet show gags and they're and some of them would become literal Muppet show gags but it it it's not it, it's its own thing um and the ensemble of Sam and Friends and the idea of finding 
of finding right from the get-go a, a a sense of community to build around and then to build up um, is really moving right away. My kid, I, did I tell you my, my daughter is doing this with me? No, oh my gosh. She's one of the correspondents. So we've been watching all this stuff and, and the one of Yorick eating food at night is so spooky and scary and it's the one she liked. <laughs> yeah. I was very proud of her. That, that I was, I watched that two days ago, that one. I was like, this is like ASMR. This is like, we're all going to the World's Fair. This is, it, it, it's terrifying in its plotlessness. And, and I think Sam and Friends is sort of the first glimpse you get into a very Henson concept of what plot is and what plot can be and what happens when you remove plot for, from, from your need to create. So what did we just watch? Um, Sam and Friends. We watched about 40 minutes of Sam and Friends that we found on YouTube, old clips. Uh, what did you think of Sam and Friends? I loved it. You loved it. What did you love about it? I loved that it was so funny. Were there any jokes in particular that you remember? I liked when Yorick was eating. He ate a whole bunch of stuff in the middle of the night, and that was the joke on that one, and you liked that. What was it like seeing Kermit? Weird. Why was it weird seeing Kermit on Sam and Friends? Because it was black and white. In Sam and Friends, every episode would be four minutes long, and then there would be one minute of, of an ad at the end, and just about all the ones we saw were for a company called SK Meats, and they would be silly little Muppet ads at the end. Did you like the ads? Yes. Did you like them more or less than the real show? Um, kind of in the middle. You don't like chicken liver. Why don't you like chicken liver? I just don't. You do like Sam. Why do you like Sam? Because he's sort of silly. Yeah. Were the um, ones where they're just lip syncing records interesting to you? No. Why were they not interesting? Because it was just singing. Even at the end when they were doing the singing in the rain one and the girl was singing while being drowned by rain, you know, there were little jokes going along with the songs. Did you notice that at all? Yeah, I liked it. That one. You liked that one. But some of the ones we saw were just kind of the puppets singing. And I think that was just sort of the, the concept at the time was like, isn't it funny to see a puppet sing? Because, you know, like I was saying to you before, it was these these puppets could move their mouths a lot better and move their mouths more than other puppets that people had seen before. And so I'm sure that was, was just exciting to see. I just don't know what to say when you say something like that. But 1955, the first year of the show, was marked by tragedy. Jim's brother, Paul, was killed in a car accident. His brother's death seemed to serve as a catalyst for Jim. As Frank Oz would later say, quote, when his brother died, he felt like he maybe didn't have enough time. He realized that he just didn't have an infinite amount of time to do all the things he wanted to do. End quote. Within a year, the Tonight Show producers got wind of the unusual act that preceded them in Washington, and they invited Jim, Jane, and the Muppets to New York for their first national appearance. I can introduce a couple of people now. Well, I don't know if I use the word people advisedly, but it's several uh, years ago in Washington, D.C., there are two young college students, uh, Jim Henson and Jane Neville. They got together with some little puppets and uh, they formed what uh, people in Washington now know as the Muppets. A little different than the puppet. 
And you folks from Washington, D.C. know them very well. They've been appearing there over to WRC-TV for two and a half years, and they're very big favorites, and we can see why. We had them on our Tonight Show a few weeks ago, and they broke it up, so we're happy to have them with us today. Here are the Muppets. I was serenely independent and content before we the Muppets were such undeniable stars that Sam and Friends began airing twice a night, with Jim and Jane in the studio to lead into the Huntley-Brinkley report in the early evening, then back a few hours later to lead into The Tonight Show. By now it was clear this act had a future, so Jim and Jane made a big decision. They founded Muppets, Inc., formally going into business together. In 1957, an ad agency approached Jim about the idea of producing some eight-second commercials for a local company, Wilkins Coffee. Jim dreamed up a new pair of Muppets, Wilkins and Wontkins. As their names suggest, one will drink Wilkins and one won't, and Wontkins, who won't, is punished for this transgression. This is the entirety of the premise. Wilkins advises drinking Wilkins coffee, Wontkins refuses, Wontkins is maimed in some outrageous manner, from being shot by a cannon or a pistol to getting electrocuted, hit by a train, swallowed by a whale, you get the drift. The ads were quick, but they were brutally funny which made them stand out in the stodgy world of TV advertising. We took a very different approach. We tried to sell things by making people laugh. Okay, buddy, what do you think of Wilkins coffee? I never tasted it. Now, what do you think of Wilkins? Care for a cup of Wilkins coffee? No, I don't like coffee. This has been a public service. We're here to persuade people to drink more Wilkins coffee. What's the club for? To get their attention. You getting on the Wilkins coffee bandwagon? Never. No! You either go with Wilkins or you just don't go. If you don't drink Wilkins coffee, you're not all there. Oh, that's a lot of... In fact, without Wilkins coffee, you're nowhere. Like Sam and Friends, the Wilkins and Wontkins ads were a sensation basically right away. And soon, other coffee companies and other markets were begging Jim to license the spots for their brands, too. Jim obliged... But rather than just redubbing the ads using the name of the new company, he insisted on reshooting the ads each time so the Muppets' mouths would match. It was a lot of work, but as a result, Jim Henson became a very wealthy 21-year-old. We'll be right back after this quick break. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So what I love about Wilkins and Wonkins is you are seeing Jim Henson's sense of humor at its purest and most unrefined. And that sense of humor really comes through in the Wilkins and Wonkins commercials. Um, you know, what's what's really fun and interesting about that too is at the time Jim was doing that, 
there were people who were concerned, oh, this is just too much for TV. It's too violent for television. No one's going to enjoy these. People went absolutely crazy for them. I think part of the reason is because they're they're over so fast. Um, you almost don't have time to process what you've just seen. You see that very first commercial uh, with the cannon when he says, okay, buddy, what do you think about Wilkins Coffee? I never tried it. Bam! Turns the camera, turns the cannon to camera. Now what, now what do you think of Wilkins? End of commercial. Cuts away. You're not entirely sure of what you've just seen. Um, that's one of the things Jim does so well in those commercials. They're so quick. Um, and if you compare them to the way coffee commercials looked at that time, it was 10 seconds of showing coffee beans roasting and coffee cups filled to the brim with roast, you know, hot coffee while a narrator is reading a card and telling you to like drink delicious Folgers coffee. Like they're, they're not something like Wilkins and Wilkins is going to get your attention. It doesn't look like anything else out there. The other thing that I think is really important about Wilkins and Wilkins is, you know, this is this is Jim in advertising. And I remember several years ago when the Muppets were advertising on the Super Bowl for I think it was a Nissan commercial and people got onto social media and were wringing their hands about, oh, my God, the Muppets have sold out. They're doing commercials. What would Jim Henson think? Uh, Jim Henson would think more power to you. Um, Jim Henson built his Muppet empire on the backs of commercials like this about Wilkins and Wilkins. Um, it, I think he did those commercials for something like seven years and they were so successful. He did it on a number of other, you know, with um, bread commercials and tea commercials and sort of the same formula over and over. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that really built the company, which makes it also very important on the business side of things. But just from a pure creative side, I think you're seeing Jim Henson at his most unadulterated and absolutely gleeful while he's doing those commercials. It's sort of interesting that Jim Henson came out of commercials so much because like that was what really kind of catapulted the Muppets to stardom. And there's this sort of attitude of, you know, anti-selling out. And uh, Henson is such a wild creative force. Like you, he's like this kind of, I don't know. Even though he wasn't per se, I kind of like imagine him sort of wound up in this whole counterculture movement. Like, but he, like the commercials were really, it seems like, what he made his bones with. And I think it's great, especially from the stance of like that being said, they're such wild commercials. <laughs> like, uh, it would be hard to imagine you know, coffee trying to sell itself these days with characters shooting one another with cannons. Wilkins and Wilkins remain some of the funniest work that uh, Jim Henson ever did. It's every time I see them, first of all, they're, they're so incredibly uh, uh, savage and violent and brutal and unapologetically so. There, none of the. I think there are a lot of people, even even Henson fans, that if you haven't seen Wilkins and Wilkins, it's shocking because it's closer to South Park uh, than it is to what we think of as the Muppets. Um, even that violence that sort of carries on later on with characters like Crazy Harry would sort of be phased out over the first over the the course of the Muppet Show. By the time by the time the Muppets are making movies, the the anarchy is less. Less, uh, less to the fore. But the timing on those commercials uh, is so fast and so funny. I, I, I would love to see what an audience watching television at the time made of them because 
some of them are, are absolutely shocking even now. Uh, and it's almost one of those things where the you're getting a uh, a pure sense of of Henson's appetite for chaos in comedy that eventually, because I think at, at his core, he was a gentle soul and a kind soul. It's interesting to see that he also had this uh, comedic darkness um, because it wasn't it wasn't true violence. There wasn't suffering. It was just the that was comedy violence it was slapsticks. But uh, uh, but it was still, uh, you know, full on setting someone on fire, shooting a cannon at them. Just like if you don't like this coffee, uh, you will experience uh, immediate pain. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen any TV commercial that's made me laugh harder than the Wilkins and Wilkins commercials, except maybe the, the LaChoy dragon ones. So tell me what we watched this time. Um, the Wilkins and Wilkins coffee ads. Did you like them? Yes. Why did you like them? Because they were so funny. Can you describe them to me? Well, Wilkins said, drink the coffee. Wilkins said, I won't drink the coffee. And then something terrible happened to Wilkins. <laughs> were there any that you liked in particular? I like the one where um, the guy put his foot on Wilkins. Right. They said if if we don't drink this coffee, Mr. Wilkins is going to put his foot down and then... The foot came down. That's right. Um, let's see. Were there any others that you liked in particular? Uh, I like the one where he got eaten by the shark. <laughs> I think it was a whale because then Wilkins said it's a whale of a coffee. Because he always says something silly at the end, right? Do you like Wilkins or Wonkins more? Wilkins. Why is that? Because Wilkins doesn't like coffee like me. After a year of making Wilkins and Wonkins ads alongside Sam and friends, Jim decided to leave his projects to other puppeteers and head to Europe. There, he traveled from Germany to Switzerland to Belgium, watching puppet shows and meeting puppeteers. He was impressed by the sophistication of the artistry, but he was even more stunned by the number of adults who attended the puppet shows. In Europe, he realized puppets weren't for kids. They were for everyone. Jim returned to America having made some decisions. For one thing, he would be taking puppetry seriously as an all-ages art form. And for another, he and Jane were going to get married. Jane was surprised. As far as she was concerned, they were friends. But she agreed. In 1959, they became the Hensons. Two years later, Sam and friends went out with a bang, quite literally. In the finale, Jim and Jane delighted in destroying the set on camera as the capstone for this chaotic TV landmark. But Jim wouldn't sit idle. He continued making commercials, and in 1961, he was approached by Purina Dog Chow to create their ads. To hawk the product, Jim invented Baskerville the Hound, a pipsqueak of a Muppet, and to accompany Baskerville, he created Ralph, operated by two puppeteers to allow for a moving mouth and two fully articulated hands. Ralph was an immediate hit, and his appeal wouldn't be limited to commercials for long. Within a year, he was invited to appear on the fledgling Jimmy Dean Show, a variety program hosted by the country singer. Jim was thrilled. Jimmy Dean's show was distinctly for grown-ups. The goal he had set for himself in Europe had come true. He was performing puppetry for an adult audience. It's National Dog Week, and we invited an old friend of ours, and this is Ralph, and we'd like you to say hello. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here as official spokesman for the dog world. And in the words of our president... Wait, 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 wait. Your president? 
Oh, yeah, we dogs have a government just like you do, you know. Oh, well, who's your president? Lassie, of course. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, we, we got a cabinet, senators, attorney general. Well, ho, 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 ho. Who, who's the attorney general? Lassie's brother. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, our government works very well, and we dogs live a very happy life. Good. There's only one thing that troubles us, and we do worry about that. And what do you worry about, Ralph? About, about you, you human beings. You yeah. see, the only hope for the human race is for every man to have a dog. Oh. In the words of the immortal Rin Tin Tin, without a dog, you got nothing. Now, wait a minute. Now, wait. Now, wait. We got our families and wives and things well, like that. Well, wives well, are all right, I guess. But does your wife come running when you whistle? Huh? Not lately, no. Does do, do she, do, do she lay at your feet by the fire? Uh, and lick your hand when you're troubled. Well, I can't recall that happening yeah. lately, no. Yeah. Do, does, does she greet you in the morning with a newspaper in her mouth? Not over two or three times that I can remember. I well, yeah. well, you see, wives and friends and family are okay. But the only one you can really depend on is your dog. In 1963, Jim, Jane, and their young daughters, Lisa and Cheryl, moved to New York City. Jane had retired from puppetry to focus on the growing Henson family, but Jim set up shop above a nightclub on the east side of Manhattan, where he worked with writer Jerry Jewell, Muppet builder Don Celine, and 19-year-old puppeteer Frank Oz on more commercials for everything from Muncho's Chips, with an ad that starred a suspiciously familiar-looking hungry monster. Introducing Muncho's from Frito-Lay. It's the all-new potato snack, not a potato chip, a potato crisp. Munchos? You see, there's more to a muncho. They're thicker than potato chips, so they're crisper with more potato flavor. Munchos! To Le Choy Chow Mein, for which Jim created Delbert the Dragon, one of the first so-called walk-around Muppets. Behold a sad bride who can't cook. <laughs> I can't even boil water! Behold a dragon who lurketh in the pantry. Lurk, lurk. But Jim was not content to stick to puppetry. He had further ambitions. He had his eye on the big screen. Timepiece was often a one-man show, Jim being credited as writer, director, actor, and animator. He even did uncredited work on the score. Don was credited for special effects, while Jerry and Frank were credited vaguely for their talents. But they were blindly following Jim's lead, none of them quite sure what the final product was meant to look like. Where some directors might have a script, Jim had a sheet of yellow legal paper split into a few categories. Little Things, where he had written things like Clock Blow Up, Jack in the Box, and Pie in Face. And Big Things, where he had written things like Factory and Diving Board. As well as Animals, under which he had listed Dog Barking, Cat Hissing, Lion Snarl, and simply Elephant. For months, Jim shot a few seconds of film at a time, fitting the project in around his existing commitments. Behind-the-scenes photos show Jim beaming in a top hat and bow tie, while Jerry stands grimacing with his hands on his hips, and Frank stares into the middle distance. Finally, there was a gala premiere at the Museum of Modern Art, where timepiece was screened continuously for hours. Jim hoped the film would be widely seen, but it was hard to find distribution for such a strange little object. Until, that is, it was packaged with the French film A Man and a Woman, landing at a year-long engagement at the Paris Theatre in New York, and leading to an Oscar nomination for Best Live Action Short. Not bad for a puppeteer in his 20s. Timepiece is 
from one of my favorite periods in Jim Henson's career. Jim isn't quite sure where he's going to land yet. So timepiece is one of those really exciting pieces you see um, where Jim is, is doing a lot of things that he really cares about and is really good about. There's animation in it. There's music in it. There's Jim Pogo sticking. Actually, it's Frank Oz Pogo sticking in the gorilla costume in there. Um, but it's it's a short film, and it's Jim sort of doing everything he does really well. It's really his um, cinematic sense, so to speak. You know, this is this is the cinematic sense forged out of doing those little short commercials. Um, it looks like a primitive, almost MTV video, for example. I mean, there's a there's a lot going on, and when you just start to get caught up in one image, it changes again. And it's got this sort of percussive soundtrack behind it. So it's so it's Jim Henson. Now it is most experimental, but still really accessible. I mean, if you still watch Timepiece, a lot of people watch it. They're not quite sure what they've seen, but they know they've seen something. Um, and it's it's just I think it's I think it's really, you know, the portrait of the artist as a young man uh, it, with that with that piece. Timepiece, I think, is is just it, it still holds up today. Nominated for an Academy Award. It loses uh, to the feature called The Chicken. Jim said he didn't even vote for himself, which I believe is probably a lie, um, but it's a great story. Uh, so so uh, timepiece is, again, it's, it's one of those pieces that's very important to Jim. And I also think it shows um, Jim's, I don't want to call it infatuation, but Jim, um, time was something very important to Jim Henson. Um, but I think he realized life is short and do as much as you can. And, and I think when you look at Jim's schedule throughout his entire life and career, you do wonder how he crammed so much stuff into a single day. Um, but I think timepiece is sort of part of that statement on, on time and how the rhythm of time defines our lives and how we're constantly at times trying to escape time. Um, so I think it's sort of important to, as well. I think it not only, as I said, it's a portrait of the artist of the young man, but it's a little bit of an insight into the, the mind of the artist at that point too. It's such an interesting window into the kinds of things he would have made left entirely to his own devices. Uh, but it shows you just how wild and improvisational his sense of humor uh, was. Um, he would, you, you can tell he's letting one idea suggest the next rather than being a master planner. Uh, and I think that's something that speaks to me uh, maybe even more powerfully now than it did when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was very acquainted with improvisational um, humor and creativity. I mean, that's how kids live. Um, now I find myself craving that kind of improvisational creativity where you are free to play without any direction. And that can lead to such wild discoveries. And so timepiece i think is a good example of something that you can follow throughout henson's career which is this this understanding that the best work is discovered rather than planned uh, not that not that you shouldn't plan i mean you you need a plan in order to take a, a step forward but if you allow the the images you make to speak back to you and to suggest things you will be taken on a much more interesting journey. And I think the entertainment and the art is much more compelling for the audience when we have a sense that the maker is just as surprised as we are, is is finding this subject so compelling rather than turning their attention away from the subject and toward the audience and sort of, you know, Svengali-like or whatever, trying to uh, um, manipulate. And so that's, I think one of the core uh, 
well, if I want to say values, but um, distinct distinctives of of Henson's imagination that keeps me coming back to his work. I find it interesting because while I love sort of that kind of stream of consciousness uh, filmmaking in small doses, I can find experimental film to get old pretty quickly. And, you know, timepiece goes on for a while, but it's it's really great. Like, it, it never stops moving. Um, it doesn't seem annoying in the way that sometimes video art can irk. Like, it's, it's funny as well as being, you know, pretty and compelling. Um, I don't know. It's interesting to think of what other sides of... Henson went unexplored and I uh, it's one of the reasons why I love something weird that comes on later on like the Jim Henson hour because it felt like even at the end he was pushing the boundaries you know he had kind of resigned like oh I guess I'm stuck with these puppets but he always wanted to do something new with them. Timepiece in particular is you know that that is on display at the museum and it is one of the the pieces I always go back to and I feel like there is a through line of sort of this anxious energy that you can see in timepiece that carries over into the Muppets in Kermit, really. Uh, I, I've always found something so pure about the expressiveness of the Muppets that I have for the most part tried to avoid learning too much about Henson and having his personality kind of cloud my uh, my relationship with with these like you know wonderful like fell characters but when i watch something like timepiece i feel as though i can sense the you know urgency and anxiety that lives inside this guy's brain and that translates so perfectly into a character like kermit who is so neurotic and worried and cares so much about everything all the time i watched timepiece again this morning um and i'd seen timepiece uh probably about a year ago and was still sort of knocked a little sideways by by what by the um it's just a sequence of editing gags like that's the whole like engine of the thing but it's so expertly conceived and like storyboarded and then acted out storyboarding that 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 the like, editing gag becomes really moving and it's about like mortality and it's about like ambition. And I don't know, I thought a lot about like editing is just reanimating dead things or still things. And that sort of becomes the mission moving forward. He's so young in that. It's so beautiful in, in his way. He's so, he's so beautiful and yeah. he knows it. I mean, like he, he he's shooting himself. Um, he's shirtless. Burping. He's shirtless frequently. Yeah, and it has already that that sense of balance between like the the naughty and the like earnest and like the peeling the banana and the striptease and the burlesque. It has a real sort of a, a sense of that already. It's it just shows that he could have done any one of uh, a dozen different career paths in terms of like if he had decided I want to make funny art films um, and I don't want to play with puppets anymore that's something that I did when I was younger for TV 
Um, I, I do wonder what that would have been like if he would have uh, tried to use timepiece as a way to like, I want to make it be a live action filmmaker. Um, I'm so glad he didn't because uh, I think he had the talent for it, but uh, I much prefer what he actually ended up doing. I've seen uh, some of the early Henson work at the Museum of the Moving Image here in New York, and I'm always so struck by the fact that Henson's just kind of always been doing this. You know, he he clearly has a lot to say about the world and, and how he views it. And his chosen delivery method has always been, you know, delightful felt creatures. I mean, there, there are the Museum of Moving Image, it does also have um, in this Henson exhibit, it has some of his early kind of industrial, commercial and like experimental short film work on display as well. And I'm always so, uh, anytime I go and watch a movie at the at the theater there, I always make sure to walk through it because I find that early work of his so inspiring because it's it's so, it feels so him while also feeling nothing like the Muppets. And there's something so interesting about the kind of clarity of his artistic voice throughout these different mediums and these different eras. Timepiece seemed to trigger something in Jim. He had been bitten by the experimental filmmaking bug and would spend the next few years struggling to mount ambitious work like the feature-length screenplay Tale of Sand, another stream-of-consciousness story concerning a man on the run, as well as Jim's quixotic ambition to open a nightclub featuring immersive projection of his abstract montages, with film even being projected onto white-clad go-go dancers. It was a time of intense creative activity for Jim, but there was little to suggest his projects had commercial appeal. Finally, as the 60s neared their close, Jim fell into the good graces of NBC, who financed an avant-garde documentary on youth culture entitled Youth 68, as well as the surreal satire The Cube. It was a start, but still more projects languished than flourished. By now, Jim saw himself as having two parallel career tracks. Two threads that I was working with at the same time. One was accepted by the audience and was successful, and that was The Muppets. The other was something I was very interested in and enjoyed. It didn't have that commercial success, but that didn't particularly frustrate me, because I enjoyed it. If Jim wasn't frustrated, that's impressive. He still couldn't find a home for either the Tale of Sand screenplay or a proposed Muppet special, Tales of the Tinker D. While he kept making good money on commercials and having a good time on talk shows, his next step as well as the future of the newly dubbed Henson Associates, was a major question mark. Still, Jim was ever sanguine, as he would write one day, I believe that we form our own lives, that we create our own reality, and that everything works out for the best. I know, I drive some people crazy with what seems to be ridiculous optimism, but it has always worked out for me. On the next episode of The Great Henson Caper, will you tell me how to get... How to get to the next stage of Jim Henson's career? Every morning, every day, every evening, calling me away. We're almost there, come on. Every morning, every day.